Welcome to our podcast, SGLT2 Inhibitors Morning Commute, Optimizing Benefit in CKD Management. Morning Commute is developed in collaboration with At Point of Care and Projects and Knowledge and is part of a continuing medical education series. This independent CME-CE activity is supported by an educational grant from Boeinger Ingelheim Pharmaceuticals and Eli Lilly and Company. In this episode, Dr. Vivian Fonseca and Dr. George Bakris will again focus on chronic kidney disease in patients with or without diabetes and treatment with SGLT2 inhibitors. The bottom line is, how should these treatments be incorporated into clinical practice? Information about the faculty and disclosures can be found at morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash SGLT2 inhibitors 3. You can use this link to receive your credit and evaluate this program. The URL can also be accessed in the episode notes. Dr. Fonseca is the Assistant Dean for Clinical Research and Professor of Medicine, as well as the Tullus Tulane Alumni Chair in Diabetes at Tulane University School of Medicine in New Orleans, where he is also Chief of the Section of Endocrinology. Dr. Bakris is a Professor of Medicine and Director of the American Heart Association's Comprehensive Hypertension Center at the University of Chicago Medicine. I am Candace Hoffman, Managing Editor of Morning Commute. Dr. Fonseca will begin our discussion. Hello. Welcome back to our podcast series, New Directions for SGLT2 Therapies. This is the third podcast in this series. Uh, and we're going to talk today about incorporating and optimizing the use of SGLT2 inhibitors in chronic kidney disease management in diabetes, as well as those without diabetes. My name is Vivian Fonseca. I'm uh, uh, at Tulane University in New Orleans, and I'm really delighted to have my colleague, George Bakris from the University of Chicago join me to talk about this uh, important topic. In the first two podcasts, we talked a little bit about the background of diabetic kidney disease, how to screen for it, uh, mechanisms of actions of a variety of drugs used in those uh, patients to try and slow the progression of kidney disease. And then we, in the second one, we looked at uh, some uh, details from clinical trials that have shown spectacular benefits of this class of drugs uh, in a wide variety of patients with chronic kidney disease and, and, and heart disease. But ultimately, we need to put this all together into incorporating it into our clinical practice. How do we use them on an everyday basis? What patients should we use? And we've touched on some of these topics in relation to the clinical trials, but I, I think we now want to turn to the broader range of patients out in primary care, in diabetes clinics, and so on, uh, as well as possibly in some specialist clinics to see how we can get the most benefit uh, in the most cost-effective kind of manner. So let me start by asking you, George, what kind of patients will benefit the most from SGLT2 inhibition. And I know you're, you're gonna say everybody, give it to everybody, put it in the water, but let, let's try to, uh, to stay away from that. Yeah, um, I think the answer to that question has to be evidence-based. And so to be evidence-based, we have to go back to the trials. So who benefited in the trials? So number one, anyone with diabetes that has very high cardiovascular risk, regardless of their kidney function, as long as their GFR is above 30 or above, um, has gotten a benefit, both from a cardiovascular standpoint and a kidney standpoint. Um, anyone that has heart failure, that, and let me 
majority of them had diabetes clearly got a benefit from SGLT2s. And we're now discovering people that have kidney disease from other causes apart from diabetes. And those people are getting a benefit. Now we don't have as much data in that group and I'm not suggesting you put it in the drinking water, so I agree with you. But I think if you have diabetes and kidney or cardiovascular disease, absolutely those people, I would argue, and the guidelines say, must be on an SGLT2 unless proven otherwise or unless there's some problem because they will clearly get a benefit. Very good. So how do these drugs stack up against other agents? You know, we have RAS inhibitors, we have AR, you know, ARBs and ACE inhibitors, we had Renin inhibition, we don't, it, it fell out of some favor. Combinations seem to be worse than single therapies. We, we also have mineralocorticoid uh, diagnosis. We have other means to control blood pressure well. What do we do? So, excellent question. Some of the questions or some of the setups that you gave me, I can't answer. And the reason I can't answer them is all of the trials, all of them thus far, have been done on background ACE or ARB therapy. Not the combination, but either ACE or ARB. And in some cases, um, the doses are a little higher. It's hard to know. But I think, and this is very important, I think a lot of clinicians have said, well, this is as good as an ACE inhibitor. So if they can't take an ACE inhibitor, we'll give them this. Big mistake, big mistake. All of the data that you see with the SGLT2 inhibitors has been on background ACE or ARB therapy, period. There's no exception. So these are not agents you substitute for an ACE or an ARB, period. Moreover, these are not agents you substitute for a mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist. Again, the trials were not designed to test whether SGLT2s are better than MRAs. So I think what we what you need to do is take a guideline approach to maximizing therapy for glycemic control, blood pressure control, and lipid control. And then after that, because of the high cardiovascular risk and or renal risk, SGLT2 should be given to that subgroup because we know they will benefit. Yes, so we still have challenges sometimes because patients have to take so many medications and they, you tell them this one's for your kidney and this one is also for your kidney and they say, well, you know, uh, I, I, I'm just gonna take one doc. Do you encourage them to take that combination? I understand what you're saying. And um, keep in mind that patients with diabetes that also have advanced kidney disease, I'm talking about GFRs now, well below 60, are taking anywhere from 14 to 16 different pills a day. So I understand the pill burden. I'm a big fan of combination therapy. So if you're taking oral glucose lowering agents or anything else, I love to give combinations. Unfortunately, the insurance companies uh, are against me because they won't fund those. And I would argue they're against the patients. Um, they're, they're highly efficacious and it's not a convenience. It actually encourages adherence. That's been shown for decades, yet it's not funded. So I tell the patient, look, 
trash GLT-2s, the studies clearly show they will slow kidney disease progression. They will reduce your cardiovascular risk on top of what you're taking. I'm sorry to add another layer, but it's one pill once a day. And I would tell you, if you want to get a benefit, suck it up and take it. If you don't want to take it, I can't force you, but you're precluding that benefit. You know, one of the challenges we have in practice is that a lot of our patients have more than just chronic kidney disease. They all have cardiovascular disease as well. And there you have other diabetes medications that have benefits or have different sets of benefits for atherosclerotic disease like GLP-1 receptor agonists. And we mustn't forget that a very important uh, a class of drugs in that respect are some of the lipid-lowering therapies. And there we have a proliferation of new ones. And when we talk to our patients about all these, they say, Doc, I'm only going to take one more. I, I've had enough from you. Well, one more medication. How do you prioritize uh, when you have this kind of tough choice of too many medications? So, um, again, my approach to this is to educate the patient. I'm not going to give them a choice unless I know they're educated. So I go through a lot of what we've already talked about. What does it take? We know that blood pressure control, glycemic control, and lipid control are key. And what does that mean? What kind of numbers are we talking about? So I tell them hemoglobin A1C well below 7, blood pressure below 130, LDL cholesterol at 70 or less. And they're like, okay, now because of your kidney disease, you're gonna need on average three different medicines for blood pressure, maybe four for glycemic control. You're gonna need at least two, if not three medications, unless you stop eating. And for lipid control, again, you're gonna need a medication and there we go. So let we do the math. Now I'm adding another medication that's gonna add to those medications. If you don't wanna do it, that's fine. But I want to remind you, and that's where I give them the fire analogy, that you know there's a house on fire. You see it. And that house is you. That's your body. If you don't put that fire out, you're trying to put it out with these other medicines, but you may not succeed. You may reduce it, but it won't go out. This medicine will help pull it out. And so do you want to do that or do you want to wait and have more of the house burn down? Because it, we know it's going to not be as good without it your choice. And that's what I do. And some people say, I'll take my chances. Some people say, well, okay, fine. And they go for it. And they think about it. You got to give them time to think about it and digest it. And I encourage them to ask me questions about it. Uh, some do, some don't. Um, at the end of the day, I do not feel bad because I told them all the pluses, all the minuses, and it's all on the table. It's their choice. And that's all you can do. So let me talk about a challenging group of patients, and that's those with type 1 diabetes who are, you know, they're fewer in number, but they're, the mo they're more challenging to manage. They have several problems, particularly once they get chronic kidney disease. Were they included in these trials? Should the results apply to them? Uh, and then we hear these horrible things about ketoacidosis and, uh, and other things like that. It's not just heard about them. I've seen several patients get uh, ketoacidosis with uh, SGLT2 inhibitors, some even in patients I thought had type 2. Uh, and, uh, you know, they went on insulin for control, but we think they have type 2, and then they get ketoacidosis. Uh, 
So could you comment on that complex patients? Remember, they've had, they're younger, they have a lot more they want to look forward to, but they've had diabetes for a much longer duration as well. Correct. So um, the majority of the trials have excluded type 1 diabetes for exactly the reason that you just brought up, ketoacidosis. There was one trial that was being done with sodagliflozin, the SGLT2, SGLT1 antagonist in type 1 diabetes, but that trial was stopped again because of ketoacidosis and other factors. So there is nothing for that group. Now, I will say, as a parenthetical note, we published, Mark Mulich and I published an analysis of data in type 1 diabetics on renal outcomes. And what we found is if you were born after 1980 with the current level of care that type 1 diabetics get, there is a 40% reduced risk of going on to dialysis. I thought that was pretty significant. Now, can the SGLT2s be used there? Well, my anecdote to your anecdotes, I've had two patients that were exceedingly adherent. I mean, these people were hardcore adherent. I educated them about ketoacidosis. I educated them about insulin use. And they initially, they did amazingly well. They were losing weight. They were reducing their insulin dose because their sugars were good. And I warned them about reducing it too much. They had keto sticks. They were checking things. And after about two months, this guy who reduces insulin by 35% said, you know, I don't feel so good. And his keto sticks were positive. I had him increase his insulin and had him go into the emergency room for evaluation. So they're no longer taking it. So it, it's, it's a problem. I don't think it's avoidable, to be completely honest with you. I think the non-steroidal mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists would be a perfect group for the type 1 diabetics in terms of how they work and because they don't affect sugars. But that remains to be seen if a trial like that's going to happen. You know, just as glycosuria is reduced as your CKD worsens because you lose filtration, does the same thing happen with ketones? Yeah, you mean reduce excretion of ketones? Yeah, so you don't recognize and maybe keep, uh, checking ketones in the urine may not be that reliable in that population. So like Something that worries me, and in fact, one of the recommendations that people have been looking for is to test blood for ketones yeah. in this kind of population. So, so excellent point. The people that I was describing had GFRs in the 80s. So it was not an issue, but you're absolutely right. Um, I don't know a specific article I can point to, but I do know that once you get a GFR below 45, and especially if you're approaching 30, ketones in the urine are not reliable, and you do need to check them in the blood. So they are reduced. Now, what happens to people who have advanced CKD or end-stage renal disease? If you look at the package, insert, these drugs are contraindicated in those patients. Why are they contraindicated? I mean, they, you know, they don't, you say they have wonderful uh, cardiac and renal, so maybe they'll benefit in some other way. I, I think you're 100% right. I, I think, um, well, first of all, I think the package insert, at least for canagliflozin, is going to change because, and maybe for DAPA, because we've got a number of patients with GFRs down to 15 that have done well. But there are zero data, zero data in dialysis patients, and by the way, there are zero data, although they, this is being studied 
and this will come soon, in transplant patients. And so the question is, especially with the calcineurin inhibitors that predispose to worsening glycemic control, it may be quite valuable there. We don't know. And I have no data on that, but that's why I think they, the FDA wants to be cautious. It's not that there's a specific reason that they're contraindicated. It's just there's no data, so you don't know what they're going to do. Now, we've been talking about all the wonderful effects. Let's talk a little bit about side effects because we have to deal with these in, in clinical practice. Yep. What are the major side effects and perhaps not so major, but irritating side effects of these medications? In yeah. So, so the major side effects that I've seen and clinicians ask me about are basically three. One, vulvovaginal infections in women or um, infections, similar infections in non-circumcised men. Number two, urinary tract infections. And number three, ketoacidosis. My response, based on my experience, now this is not published, but based on my experience of hundreds of patients, is to prevent the vulvovaginal infections. I educate the patients about keeping that area very dry. I tell them why. And I strongly encourage use of cornstarch baby powder in that area, especially if they can't keep it dry. So not just once a day, but maybe two or three times a day. I've, I've followed up with those people. They've not reported any problems and they thank me for it. Urinary tract infections, I have to say, there were a few people that I gave the medicine to that had recurrent urinary tract infections. They developed a urinary tract infection very soon after that. Anecdotally, I don't give it to people that have frequent urinary tract infections anymore. If you have one urinary tract infection every five years, I just remind you of ways to prevent that and have not had a problem. And lastly, ketoacidosis. And basically, I tell the patient, look, in the trials, everybody that's gotten the problem with ketoacidosis, it's they've stopped insulin because of a GI problem or something like that, but they keep taking the SGLT2. Don't do that. Stop both. And if you stop both, you will not have that issue until you resume the insulin. Then you can resume the SGLT2. And I have not had any issues with that. That's my experience. What's yours? Yeah, I, I, unfortunately, people, uh, you know, it's not just GI issues. People stop the insulin when they get hypoglycemia. Well, and yeah. and you, you can't blame them for that. Uh, and and that can happen. And next thing you know, they're in the emergency room and the ER doc misses the diagnosis of, of uh, ketoacidosis because the blood sugar is not too bad. Right. And, and those people get very, very sick. And they've yeah. been deaths reported, as you know. It's It's been a major problem. And you mentioned the, the sotagliflozin data. That drug was not approved for type 1 diabetes. They so right. far, no one has sought the approval. But... The reality is that a lot of people with type 1 diabetes who are using them in clinical practice. And we have to learn how to manage those people because they they are they perceive the benefits in terms of their glucose being flat and very well controlled. And, and uh, they had not seen that before. And uh, it, it is a bit of a challenge and you have to repeatedly warn them about this. Let me, let me ask you, when should these drugs be stopped? Well... Clearly, if you develop one of these rare side effects like balanitis or in men um, or Fournier's gangrene, I actually had a patient that developed it. Um, they are exceedingly rare, 
exceedingly rare, but you have to be aware. And if they develop them, I stop them. Although I had one patient who refused to stop. He had balanitis and he refused to stop because he had never had that kind of metabolic control ever in his life. And he was really recalcitrant about stopping it. But, you know, what about, what about uh, you know, some people st get panicky when kidney disease is progressing and they stop the, even the ACE inhibitors or the ARBs, uh, which I think is wrong, uh, unless there's hypokalemia. Uh, and should you be stopping some of these medications? And I know from, you know, Credence trial, they were not stopped and these people did well, as you pointed out earlier. But could you, could you put that into perspective as to reassuring people not to stop the medication because although the kidney disease is getting worse, it would get a lot worse, uh, even worse, if for lack of a better term, uh, you get much worse if they, they uh, stop the medication. That's an excellent question. There's a beautiful paper that I would encourage everyone to read. It's in the JAMA Internal Medicine. And it's a database analysis. It was published uh, in 2020 uh, of about 4,000 patients. And these are people, they asked the question, if you're on an ACE or an ARB and you had a greater than 40% increase in serum creatinine, should you stop it? And what happened to cardiovascular events? And if you had a GFR of less than 30, should you start an ACE or an ARB? The answer to the question is, should you stop it if you had a greater than 40% increase in serum creatinine? Absolutely not. The people that continued the medicine had slower a progression of kidney disease and fewer people going on dialysis than people had stopped it. Number two, if your GFR is less than 30, should you start it? And the answer was yes. They had better benefit in terms of fewer people going on dialysis. And cardiovascular events were dramatically lower in both groups. Now, obviously, the caveat is hyperkalemia in those groups. And we now have pteromir, we have localma, these are potassium binding agents that enable the use of these agents in that setting. So the guidelines, the ADA guidelines, the kidney guidelines clearly state that up to a 30% increase in serum creatinine, as long as you don't have hyperkalemia and things are stable, you should continue ACEs and ARBs. You should not stop them. You're not causing acute kidney injury. And the number one reason for this is volume depletion. So you've got to make sure you ask the patient about how much fluid they're drinking. And if it's less than a liter and a half to two liters a day, they've got to increase their fluid and that will improve kidney function. That's critical. Yeah, that brings me to another issue and that of dehydration that can occur with some of these drugs, particularly in the summer down in the south, uh, maybe even in the you know, Midwest, North, uh, you can get, it can get pretty hot and humid and people get dehydrated if they're out in the sun. Uh, elderly people might have that effect and drop their blood pressure, and you get more falls, which has raised some controversies about fractures. Well, you don't fracture unless you fall, uh, and some of the falls may be due to low blood pressure and dehydration. So, Vivian, this is an excellent point, especially in patients on diuretics, especially in patients with diuretics, if they have good kidney function, meaning GFR is 60 or higher. A lot of times when I start the SGLT2 inhibitors, I will cut back the diuretic or stop the diuretic altogether to see how the patients do and see how their blood pressure is. Because remember, it will lower blood pressure. And if the pressure is okay, I don't restart the diuretic. If it's not, I will restart the diuretic, but at half the dose, very low dose. 
And if they're already on a very low dose, I find I don't need to restart the diuretic. So that's an excellent point, and thank you for bringing it up. Well, thank you, George, and I'd like to thank the audience for listening in. I hope that you've learned some pearls of clinical management from George or how to incorporate these new agents into management of patients with chronic kidney disease, who can be very, very challenging and lead to optimal management that will prevent uh, not, not just dialysis transplantation, but also maybe some associated heart disease and heart failure in these patients while maintaining good glycemic and blood pressure control. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, George, again. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. Remember to visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash SGLT2 inhibitors three to receive your credit and evaluate this program. For our other endocrinology podcasts, please visit morningcommutepodcast.com forward slash endocrinology. Our podcasts are a convenient way to earn your continuing medical education credits.